beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the catechism continues to work out the deliverance that we have in Christ, that's the section we're dealing with, covering the Apostles' Creed and the articles about our Savior, and as it continues to work this out, we've come to a Lord's Day this afternoon that is actually somewhat unique. You see, in all the previous Lord's Days, dealing with the person and work of our Savior, there's been a focus on a specific name, a specific event in his ministry. And of course, these things do have ongoing consequences and significance, but there were always particular moments or names that were in mind. Well, now with Lord's Day 19, there's actually a great deal of time that's being covered. You see, our confession deals with the time that Christ ascended into heaven all the way until he returns in glory at the end of world history. And what comes out in particular as we consider these matters is the fact that, yes, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but this is for the benefit and also the comfort of his church. And those two words there are very important. Benefit and comfort. You see, Christ ascended into heaven not to get away from everything or take a bit of a break, a holiday from all his work. No, he ascended into heaven to manifest or to reveal himself as the head of his church. And the glory that he has there in heaven is something that benefits us right now in the present. Finally, it's to our comfort that our head will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, to really understand these things and to be able to work with them, we have to think about things realistically. Because that time covered by this Lord's Day, from the ascension to the return of Christ, it's not an easy time for the church of the Lord Jesus. It's a time in which there is an ongoing struggle that takes place, a struggle that we are all too familiar with. But with this Lord's Day, what's presented to us is the fact that while the church does carry on through the struggle, looking forward to being reunited with her bridegroom in glory, there's always a sense of hope. She may be assured and comforted by the fact that Christ is currently seated on the throne and that he will return. And about these things I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme, enthroned in heaven, Christ comforts his church in her struggle. We'll consider two points. In the first place, he rules as her head in the present. And secondly, he will come as judge in the future. Brothers and sisters, when you look at Lord's Day 19, you will see that the authors of the Catechism strive to deal with the present in which we live in a very realistic way. Answer 51. You have the mention of the enemies of God. Answer 52. Our confession speaks about lifting up one's head in the midst of sorrow, 
in the midst of persecution. And notice that it also makes these things very specific. Because it doesn't talk about sorrow and persecution in some generic way, but rather, my sorrow, my persecution. Now, when the Catechism mentions such things, there's no doubt that when it was written, the authors were all too familiar with them. One only needs to read the history of the church to think of how terrible the persecutions could be. The way in which Christians were tortured by institutions such as the Spanish Inquisition, the way in which they were martyred at the hands of their enemies, it leads one to being uncomfortable at times, actually. But the authors of the Catechism aren't talking about sorrow and persecution just on the basis of what they've seen for themselves. When there's mention of enemies, sorrows, persecutions, it goes back to what the Lord Jesus said would happen during this time where he's in heaven. It's something he actually revealed in that parable we read from Matthew 13. There's the man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone's sleeping, you have the enemy who comes in, and he sows weeds among the wheat. So right away, notice that there is the presence of an enemy. But then this enemy makes things worse, because now among the wheat, there's all these different weeds. And because the man does not want to root up the wheat while pulling out the weeds, he says both have to be allowed to grow up together. Well, in the explanation, the Lord Jesus makes it clear what he means with all this. In the world in which we live, there are the sons of the kingdom of God, and there are the sons of the evil one, sowed into this world by Satan himself. And in this time, before the harvest, namely before the final judgment, The sons of God and the sons of the evil one are in this world together. They don't just form little separate colonies or communities so that the two will never meet. No, there are ways in which they do connect and that they do so on a regular basis. What's interesting from the parable is the specific type of weed that's mentioned by the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've noticed in a footnote in your Bible, the weed he's likely referring to is darnel. And in its early stages, this particular weed actually very closely resembles wheat. It only shows that it's a weed once it gets to mature stages. There's a lesson for us there. If we simply go by the outward things of what we see, it's not always easy to tell the children of God and the children of the devil. Those differences, they only come out as one digs a little bit deeper. And something else that complicates matters is what farmers or gardeners know well It's the fact that weeds often grow quicker than wheat or any other plant. Very quickly, weeds outnumber the wheat. 
And if you think about the parable of the sower, you find that right before the passage we read together, weeds take away the very things that wheat needs. Weeds choke out wheat. And you can see where there would be tensions. After all, the children of God desire to do the will of their father. The children of the devil desire to do the will of their father, to use the words of the Lord Jesus in John 8. So what it means is that there's two opposing agendas or two worldviews that are currently at work in this world. And what the Lord Jesus is describing here in this parable is the situation that has existed since the fall into sin and that will continue to exist until he returns at the end of world history. He also spoke about this to his disciples. In John 15 verse 19 he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that hatred, it goes all the way back to God's declaration of war, which we read in Genesis 3 verse 15. Many may know the passage well. God declared that there would be enmity or hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we have a fancy word for that enmity. God set the antithesis in place. And it's because of that ongoing hatred, that ongoing enmity, the church in the present finds herself in a very deep struggle. Because there are the enemies of the church. There is no getting around that fact or ignoring it. And not only does this refer to the weeds, the sons of the evil one, it also refers to the evil one himself. And Peter writes about him in 1 Peter 5. He's prowling around this world like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because there's this enmity, this natural opposition between the two parties, things will be difficult. There will be sorrow. There will be persecution that the church faces. It's something that we're hearing, seeing, experiencing more and more. Because you have the weeds, the sons of the evil one. They're getting increasingly vocal. And they're saying, no, there is no room for the children of God in this world. There's no place for those who desire to do the will of God, who promote a worldview in accordance with what the Lord commands in his word. There's different powers, there's different people, and they seem to have so much control, so much influence, promoting an agenda that stands opposed to the Lord, and there seems to be little, if anything, that we can even do to stop it. You don't have to look hard to see it happening in our own country. Think of the whole wave of LGBTQ issues, and everything beyond that, and connected with it, just to give an example. There's no hiding from such things. They confront us head on. And the more that happens, it leads to different reactions on our part. For some, as they see 
the tidal wave approaching, as they see different powerful people at work, they get angry. They get frustrated. For many others, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's not hard to let a sense of worry or anxiety set into our hearts. Questions arise. What does the future hold for me personally? What does the future hold for the church in our lifetime? What are things going to look like five, ten, twenty years down the road? What does the world hold for my children, my grandchildren? The more the church of Jesus Christ experiences such things, the more those words of Psalm Psalm 43 we sang earlier come to mind. It's that prayer, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. But while all these things are true, what's equally true is the fact that there is very rich comfort for the church in this time. Even when the weeds and the wheat are in this world together, there is still every reason for us to have peace in our heart. How? It's by reflecting on the current state of things. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven He's seated on the throne at God's right hand, and he is governing all things. If you think about that parable from our reading, just because the man allowed the weeds and the wheat to grow up together, it doesn't mean he just threw up his hands, he didn't just quit, didn't give up control and let things play out randomly. Consider what our confession says in answer 50. Jesus Christ manifests himself as head of the church through whom the Father governs all things. There's two things being addressed there. On the one hand, you have Jesus Christ manifesting or showing himself most fully as head of his church. He's governing all the affairs of his church. He's bringing his bride forward to the day of the great wedding feast of the Lamb, the day where she will be presented without spot or blemish to her bridegroom. But seated on the throne, the same one, Jesus Christ, is also the one through whom the Father is governing all things. There's nothing in this world, in this cosmos, that falls outside the authority of Christ in any way. You can think of what the Lord Jesus said just before he ascended into heaven. He told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And with all this, the words of Psalm 2 actually come to mind. If you think about that psalm, it begins with the nations raging, the people's plotting. And yes, that sounds like a commentary on our time, doesn't it? But what's God's reaction to that? He laughs. And then he becomes angry. 
And he says, I've got my king seated in Zion. Now kiss him lest you perish. And that presents us with a very honest question we need to ask ourselves. If that's God's reaction, namely that he laughs at these nations plotting and raging, why is our reaction any different? If we know and if we believe and if we live out that Christ is seated on the throne at God's right hand, why shouldn't we laugh as well? The comfort of the church, even in this whole time of struggle where things seem to be chaotic, the comfort is this. The governing of the church and the governing of the world is in the same hand. And it's the hand of the one who was nailed to the cross, who bought his church with his precious blood. And as he governs, the Lord Jesus does not have two different goals. He's not working all things to one end and his church to something different. No, because Christ is seated on the throne at the right hand of God, holding that position of power and glory, the governing of all things is being used for the good of the church. Think back to the parable once again. There was a reason why the man did not want the weeds pulled up right away. We read that in verse 29. No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. This man allowed the weeds to stay in the field because he didn't want to harm the wheat. He wasn't concerned about preserving the weeds. He didn't want to lose his wheat. Christ continues governing all things, and he has not yet returned because that's what's for the good of his church. The full number of his people has not been gathered in. There's still work to do before the marriage feast of the Lamb can be celebrated. And perhaps that sounds weird to think about it that way. After all, if we would think about things from our perspective, what we think would be best? Well, clearly for us, the best thing that would happen is that everything comes to a conclusion right now that the judgment takes place and we are with Christ eternally. And yes, that's what we long for. That's what our Lord and Savior is working towards. That is what we pray for. But for the good of the whole church, that's not yet what is best. The harvest is not ripe for being gathered in. And thus the Son of God, the head of the church, he continues to govern all things with his particular goal in mind. And along the way, he does everything necessary for his church in this time of her struggle. And that's what our confession continues to work with. Not only does he govern over all things, but the glory of Christ our head benefits us in two ways. In the first place, by his spirit, the head pours out heavenly gifts upon his members. And secondly, by his power, he continues to defend and preserve his people against all enemies. In other words, 
This time of struggle continues. But it's Christ who's equipping his people with everything they need in the struggle. He doesn't pull us out of it at this time. He arms us. The Catechism speaks first about the heavenly head pouring out gifts. Well, here's the question. Which gifts are in focus here? If you think about the fact that the church is presently in that time of struggle, the gifts would be the things that we need for the struggle. And if you look at the catechism, you'll see that there's two particular proof texts. In the first place, there's Acts 2, verse 33. And just to give some context, this is part of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And Peter says there, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." Well, what were the people seeing? What were they hearing at that time? It was the Spirit being poured out. It was the gospel of salvation being proclaimed in all the different languages of the people who were there. So the first gift that Christ gives to his church in this time of struggle is that good news of salvation. He provides them with that certainty of his victory through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he has that message proclaimed time and again. It ties into the next thing the Catechism references, Ephesians 4, verse 7 through 12. If you read through that passage, you'll see that it refers to the office bearers that Christ has given to his church. These gifts are all connected. The head provides his people with the gospel. He gives men to proclaim the gospel, to bring the gospel into the homes of the members, to equip the people for living out of that gospel. And so the church of Jesus Christ is continually receiving the encouragement of what her head has already done. How he has already conquered all his enemies. And now having won that victory, the Lord Jesus tells his people, through the word, he's governing all things. He's won the victory. He's defending, he's preserving his church against all her enemies. And what a powerful and beautiful encouragement that is. Because that enmity, that antithesis, which God set in place immediately after the fall into sin, that didn't just disappear. It hasn't gone away. And you can be assured, the seed of the serpent continues to do all it can to increase the sorrow and persecution of the seed of the woman. If you want a reference for that, you can look at Revelation 12. But here's the thing. We can talk about the seed of the serpent all we want. We can talk about how they're continually engaged in this enmity. But what about us? Sadly, If we look at our lives and we examine ourselves, 
then what we will see is that there are times where we are not as dedicated to this struggle as we ought to be. Each one of us can likely think of times and places in our lives where rather than being part of the enmity, we were almost willing to join the other side. Or at least we wanted to get as close to that line as possible without crossing over. It happens more often than we like to admit. The word enmity doesn't mean to us what it should. Rather than living with that enmity, we prefer to negotiate, to compromise, or even to give in. But again, this is where the gifts from our head function in our struggle. Because what do we hear through the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus Christ has obtained for us the forgiveness of all our sins. That his blood was poured out for us. And through the work of the office bearers, the minister, the elders, the deacons, we're encouraged in that ongoing battle, that ongoing enmity against sin. We're also admonished as they bring God's word to us in those times where we give sin too much of a place in our lives. So yes, the struggle does rage on. The rage of the enemy who sowed the, seeds of, who sowed the weeds of this world continues to increase as history gets closer and closer to its end. But for the church of Jesus Christ, we continue on. We hold fast to the one who bought us with his blood, the one who made us his own possession. And thus we sing with confidence, my soul, why are you sad and grieving? Why so oppressed with anxious care? Hope yet in God, his word, believing. And with such a confession in the present, we are also reminded things will not always be this way. Struggle does have a conclusion. The sorrows and persecutions will come to an end. And it will all take place for the church when her head returns as judge in the future. We come to our second point. In that parable we read together, the man encourages his workers or his harvesters that in the present, they just need to be patient. But he does say there's going to come a time where the wheat and the weeds are separated. And the separation he refers to is a permanent separation as well. He says in verse 30, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. When you look at the explanation of our Lord a few verses later, we read the following in verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. But when weeds are burned, they can't come back and settle into the field ever again. The Lord Jesus is saying that with the judgment, it's final. Nothing about it can be changed. Nothing about it can be reversed. 
And then after the judgment has been executed on the weeds, then will come the blessed declaration for the wheat, the sons of the kingdom. But before we go too far with that, note the specific order of things. The sentence is first pronounced on the weeds, then for the wheat. The sons of the kingdom see and hear for themselves what the judge says about the children of the evil one. It's not as though they are left in the dark wondering what happened to those who persecuted, what happened to those who oppressed and caused them sorrow in this life. And the judge makes that plain to them as well. Our confession picks up on this in answer 52. There you find the same order. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. At first it might seem, okay, what's important about that? Does that matter? The truth is, yes, it does matter. The Apostle Paul uses that particular knowledge to comfort the believers in Thessalonica. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he begins by addressing what's going to happen to those who persecute the church of Jesus Christ and those who do their best to make the lives of God's people in this world miserable. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, he writes of the Lord Jesus appearing from heaven with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul's saying to the believers, I know you're suffering. I know it's a struggle for you. But the struggle is going to come to an end. And this is how. Knowing what lies ahead is meant to be a comfort for the church right now. All our struggle, all our sorrow, all our persecution is not going to last forever. In fact, it all has a specific end date, one that's been determined by God. It's what we sang in Psalm 20. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And how do we know it's going to take place? It's the Lord Jesus. He's governing over all things until the coming of that day. He's doing every single thing necessary so that this day on which judgment is pronounced will in fact come and there is nothing that can stop it. And like we said, that's meant to be a comfort for the church. But we still haven't even gotten to the heart of this comfort. Yes, we can talk all we want about judgment for the weeds, those children of the evil one. But what's more important, what's most important, is the identity of the judge. Because that's where our hope and comfort really lie. You see, the judge is not a neutral person, someone completely unbiased. But we confess, we eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. 
That's our judge. And that's what makes all the difference. The truth is this. If the judge were anyone else besides Jesus Christ, our comfort would be shaken. If it were not Christ serving as judge, there'd be all kinds of questions, even concerns. How's the judgment going to work out? But because it's Christ who is the judge, we already know how it's going to work out. Because the truth is this, and we confess it in Belgian Confession Article 26, there is no creature who loves us more than Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, commit those words to your heart and your mind. There is no creature who loves us more than Jesus Christ, and that's who is coming as judge. He showed his love through his suffering and death on the cross. We know that his love is what motivated him to experience the unspeakable anguish and torment of hell. And his love was not just something of the past, but it exists in the present. Christ intercedes for us before his Father. He's busy governing over all things for the good of his church. But it's that same love of Jesus Christ that also stands in the foreground as we consider the future. Because Christ's love is going to come out in his work as judge. The one who loved us so much that he gave up his life for us. He's going to proclaim his love once again. He'll declare it as he brings his people home to himself. As he dwells with them forever. Think about it this way. We know from Revelation 20 that with the final judgment the books will be opened. There will be the record of every person's life what they've done in the flesh. For the child of the evil one, they have nothing to offer. Their sins and guilt are evident. But what's worse, there's no means for forgiveness any longer because they refuse to repent and believe in the Savior God provided. But for the child of God, the judge is the very one who died for the forgiveness of their sins. The judge is the one who presently is interceding for them before the Father on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. For the child of the evil one, there will be the pronouncement of judgment. To use the words of Matthew 25, verse 41, he will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The judge is going to declare in the presence of everyone that the weeds have no place with him. We read it in Matthew 13, verse 42. He will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for the children of God, it will be very different. And it's because the judge is the one who suffered their judgment when he was sentenced by that earthly judge to death on the cross. We have it in the form for the Lord's Supper. Though innocent, he was condemned to death. Why? So that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. And thus, as a result, 
The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The radiance, the glory of God will be reflected in them and through them. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49, dwelling in the very presence of God, our recreation complete, God's glory will shine through his children. And that's again because of the identity of the judge. And it depends on our relationship with the judge and whether right now, from the heart, we confess him as our Savior. And for for some, this sounds a little bit unfair. It sounds as though the children of God get some privileged treatment. That's the way it ought to be. Not because the children of God are so great and deserve anything in this life, but it's because they're the recipients of God's grace. They're the ones who receive His love and compassion in abundance. And then look at the parable again. It was the children of God placed in this world first. It was the wheat first put in the field. The weeds came second. They were the attempt of the enemy to destroy what God had established. But what takes place at the final judgment is the perfect fulfillment of what God declared from the moment that attempt began. We heard it earlier. God declared war. God declared enmity. And it's at the final judgment. His victory will be complete. His and our enemies will be cast into that lake of fire to suffer the eternal wrath of God against their wickedness and rebellion. But in contrast, the angels will take the children of God to their eternal home where they will dwell with their Savior forever. And thus the church is comforted in this time of present struggle with the knowledge the struggle will end. The struggle is worth it. The judge who bought us with his blood sits on the throne. He will vindicate his people just as they pray for him to do. And so what does that mean for us? It means that right now, regardless of the enemies, regardless of the sorrows and persecutions, we have every reason to live out the words of our confession, to lift up our heads. Because in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. When the governing of the church and the governing of all things is in the same hand, we know now how things will end. That's our comfort. We have confidence in the present. We have hope for the future. And it's because Jesus Christ is seated on the throne ruling all things. It's because he's going to come as judge. And so thus we can sing with confidence and joy at the end of this service. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And only, it's only threatening. That's all they can do. They can threaten to undo us. But we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is 
forever. Amen.